As we begin our second meditation on Pentecost and prayer and power, I want to quote the two quotes, one of Pete Gregg and one of Nicky Gumbel that I started with and referenced last week again. Pete Gregg says, prayer is actually pretty much the most important thing in life. And Nicky Gumbel says something almost identical. He says, prayer is the most important activity of our lives. And as we come back to Acts chapter 4 again, that passage from verse 23 to 30, the first recorded prayer of the Christian community after the day of Pentecost, I want to just stop for a second and look at how Luke is the author of both the Gospel, according to Luke, obviously, and Acts. And he wrote both these documents. It's end, it ends up being this one long history, if you like, for uh, a man named Theophilus, who obviously uh, commissioned him for that. And the gospel starts, Luke starts, with uh, him saying that he's got together this whole thing to compile an account of the things accomplished amongst us. He's obviously talking about Jesus, but he's saying, I'm looking at this, I want to see what was accomplished amongst us, and I compiled this document so that you can see who Jesus is and what he did. Acts is uh, specifically references Theophilus, and it begins in verse chapter 1, verse 1, with this. Um, As in my former book I wrote, referencing the gospel, all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And he takes it on and he links the two together and he moves it on. Now, the Gospel of Luke, if you like, is the first half of the story. Jesus with his disciples. One individual full of the Holy Spirit who acts with God's power and wisdom, who speaks with God's authority, who loves with God's love. The Anointed One, the one who is immersed, baptized, Uh, thoroughly flooded with the Spirit of God. And in Luke 4, Luke um, quotes Jesus as he comes to the synagogue right at the beginning of his uh, ministry. And he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to, and then he lists the things that are going to be the core of his ministry amongst the people that he's come to, um, to save. What we need to look back at is in chapter 2 and chapter chapter 3, in the beginning of chapter 4 rather, sorry, the baptism of Jesus in Luke 3 is recorded that the Spirit of God comes down out of heaven and settles on Jesus. There is this visible sign that Jesus is not only immersed in baptism, but the Spirit of God descends on him. And it says in Luke chapter 4, right at the beginning, that he was... um, full of the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit led him, he was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted. There is this almost overwhelming sense in chapter 3 and 4 of Luke uh, of the fact that Jesus is completely immersed and overwhelmed by the sense of God's presence in power with the Spirit. And then comes the rest of Luke's Gospel, and the things that Jesus said and that he did leading up to the cross and then the resurrection. That's the gospel. Then in, then in Acts, the second um, 
volume, if you like, of the entire story. It's from Pentecost onwards. And the same Holy Spirit that you have at the beginning of uh, the gospel story coming on Jesus is the same Holy Spirit who comes in, in, in Acts chapter 2 on the assembled people. It's now no longer just on one individual, but it's on the body, the body of Christ. All these people who are the sons and daughters of the living God, the anointed ones now, to continue the work of Jesus and to say what Jesus did, to speak on his behalf and to do what Jesus himself had been doing. What Luke is saying to Theophilus is, is simply this in a nutshell. What Jesus did, what the Father did uh, for and in Jesus, the Father is now doing for and in and through his body, which is us. And for this powerful and authoritative community, the church, Luke shows how vital prayer is. Right at the beginning of Luke's gospel, I mean, sorry, at, in, in Acts, in Acts chapter 1, in verse 14 of the first chapter, when Jesus has now uh, assembled them and he's ascended into heaven, it says that they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. This is not just a, a throwaway line. This is now the core value of a community that is looking to see how they can um, follow Jesus as disciples. In chapter 2, after, that's pre-Pentecost. After Pentecost, in chapter 2, verse 42, at the end of this chapter where Peter has preached, and we get a picture of the image of the early church, it says they were continually devoting themselves to two or three things and to prayer. Prayer is pivotal in terms of the lifeblood of the community, its unity, its power. In Acts chapter 3, Right immediately after that, Peter and John are going to the temple in the ninth hour, about three o'clock in the afternoon, to pray. And then we have Acts 4, as we saw last week and as we uh, pause a little to reflect on this week again, where after Jesus, after Peter and John are incarcerated and come before the, um, the Jewish council, they're all together in a unity in Acts 4 verse uh, 24 and 25, praying together. And the quotation of Psalm 2 in that prayer is not by mistake. It's not, it's a reminder. It's, as we said last week, it's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, along with Psalm 110, which is almost an identical psalm in terms of the body of what it actually says. Now, why would they have quoted Psalm 2 in their prayer. Well, for a start, let's just say this, that the Psalms are the prayer book of Israel, of the Jewish people, and the, and, and the hymn book, the praise book, if you like. But we're talking about prayer at this point. It's the, it's the backbone of how they learned to pray. And so referencing Psalm 2 would have provoked uh, connections for them. They would have immediately been able to say, well, we know what's going on. And the Psalms are, they, they, they weren't just all um, Psalm 1 to 150, weren't just fully formed like that. They were Psalms that were written and sung and then they were gathered together and edited into this thing. And it's no mistake 
I believe, that Psalms, Psalms 1 and 2 stand at the beginning. And one of the commentators says that Psalms, so the two Psalms, 1 and 2, are like, and I quote here, the twin pillars flanking the entry into prayer and power. Psalm 1 and 2, the twin pillars that are on the doorway into prayer and power. A pair of prayers, a pair of praises, a pair of psalms that guide us into a way of communion, a communion with our Father, which is both intimate and powerful. Psalm 1 begins with the sense of blessed is the man or the woman. Blessed is the beginning of it. At the end of Psalm 2, so almost like brackets on the beginning and ending of these two psalms, he says, blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. And Jesus, in a way, picks up on this in the Sermon on the Mount with his eight blesseds right at the beginning of, of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and these would have resonated, that they would have made connections in, in terms of this. So, briefly, two thoughts on Psalm 1 and two thoughts on Psalm 2. So, these things would have been in the minds of um, those who were in this meeting or prayer meeting, if you like, in Acts chapter 4. Psalm 1 is all about coming to attention before God. The beginning of prayer is attentive listening, coming to attention before our Father. That's the action. So there's an action and an image in Psalm 1 that is really at the heart of it. The action is action that we would perhaps not call action, but it's almost inaction. It's a meditation. And it's meditation on the Torah, the law, the Word of God. And it's important for us to see at the moment this word meditation, which is used here, is the same word that Isaiah uses in Isaiah 31 verse 4 about the lion who has killed his prey. And it's this, it, it invokes the sound of the lion as it, it, it uh, has killed the prey. And, and it's a very powerful image if you've ever seen it. And, and it's, it's, it's something that will always stay with you. When the lion has made the kill, they don't just eat immediately. They almost protectively lean over it. And there is this deep, purring, growl sound that is actually quite chilling and quite awesome in the true sense of the word, that is this kind of anticipation of what they are going to partake in, the sense of what is going to give us strength. Now, I tell you all that because that's the word that's used here for meditation. It's this brooding over. It's this anticipation of eating and of being fooled and being strengthened for what lies ahead. And it's this anticipation of purring and it's, it's visceral. And that's how the meditation is seen. It's not something that is kind of pie in the sky. This is really about getting into the meat of what God is and who he is. And then there's an image and it, it, it comes hard on the heels of the sense of what it is to meditate. And the image is a tree planted by streams of water. And I'm not going to say a huge amount about this, but we begin to comprehend the invisible 
when we take time to observe the visible. And it's almost as if God's instruction to Israel at the beginning of the process of prayer and of, of locking into the power of God is to say, go find yourself a tree, sit down in front of it and look at it long and thoughtfully. In other words, what the psalmist is saying is we need to bring our attention to God and we need to thoroughly pay attention to what is going on around us, in us, and in every sense of just meditating both on God's Word and on what's going on in and around us. Then Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is interesting because it uses the same Hebrew word for meditate that um, Psalm 1 uses and that Isaiah uses about the lion. And Instead here, it's used by those who plot against God. And it's translated in most translations, um, plotting. Those, the people who plot in vain against the, against the Lord and His anointed. And uh, they plot, they meditate, they brood, they, they, they're actively working towards how they can take control in order to rule and to have power. And even those who appear to be the most impressive, the nations, the peoples, the kings, the rulers, as they're all spoken of in, in, in Psalm 2, they turn this rejection into their own personal power. Instead of um, God having power, and they, they wrest control and authority from God, and they rule. And if this is true, for us, and we see it all around us in our own world, um, how then do we pray and it makes a difference? What chance is there when we're meditating on God's Word and, on, on a, and, and like a tree planted next to the water? With all the movers and shakers in our world, with all those who have the power, what difference does it make in terms of our prayer? And there's two things that, that Psalm 2 is telling us. And the first is this. Do not be intimidated. Do not be bowed down. Do not be um, silenced by those who appear to have this uh, inordinate amount of power. Because what's at stake here is how we see. Size matters in, in, in this sense. Because what the psalmist is saying is that God is large. God is in control. God is powerful. He's huge. As the kids say, he's humongous. He's so much larger and bigger than any president, any prime minister, any kind of power that there is vested in the world. As we read last week from Ephesians, that he reigns, he has authority over all the principalities and powers. All of that is put under his feet because the Father has taken him and seated him in the heavenlies with all authority and all power. And that is given to us. So the first thing the psalm is saying to us is that we need to see as God sees. That God is in control, actually. That he has all the power. And there's that magnificent passage in 2 Kings. And I'm moving over to the message here. 2 Kings chapter 6. And... There's a whole lot of stuff that's been happening with Elisha and um, he's been a thorn in the flesh to um, 
the king of Aram. And, and it simply says the king of Aram was furious. And in order to settle this once and for all, and he sends his army to go and arrest one man, Elisha. And the poor unsuspecting uh, servant, it says here in chapter 6, verse 15, 2 Kings, early in the morning, a servant of the holy man got up and went out. Surprise! no doubt, horses and chariots surrounding the city. And the young man yells out, Oh no, master, what shall we do? Terrified, intimidated, um, he says this. And here are the words that Elisha says to him. Because Elisha had been trained in how to see. He said to him, Don't worry about it. There are more on our side then on their side. Simple, done, dusted. God is more powerful than the whole Aramean army. God is more powerful than any prince, king, president, prime minister, business empire. And then Elisha prays this and he says, O oh God, open his eyes and let him see. Simple, down-to-earth prayer. O oh God, open his eyes. And let him see. And the eyes of the young man were opened, and he saw a wonder the whole mountainside full of horses and chariots of fire surrounding Elisha. When the Arameans attacked, Elisha just said, Oh Lord, strike them with blindness. You see, it's easy to be intimidated if we are just seeing with what we can see. And Elisha says, Lord, let him see. Let him just actually see what's going on here. And when we come to prayer, what we are doing is we are refreshing ourselves in the ability, the capacity to see how big God is, who's in control, what's actually going on in and around us all the time. We pray, open our eyes, Lord, because the nations can rage, as in Psalm 2. They can, they can devise all kinds of plans. And what it says in Psalm 2 is God laughs at them. He laughs at them. And so that's the first thing about Psalm 2, is that we mustn't be intimidated because our God reigns, literally. He's in control. The second thing is this, that God uses those things that are just plain ordinary. He uses the everyday. There's an interesting thing about David. David wasn't the one who looked good. He wasn't the one who, he was really not to be unkind, a little bit about a, a runt of the litter. Because when um, uh, Samuel came to anoint one of David's uh, brothers, he, he looked and God actually said to him, don't look on the outside. God judges differently. He looks on the heart. He looks on the inside. God sees differently. And God has decided that he is going to anoint and empower the ordinary things in order to see his kingdom come. There with, with disdain in Mark 6, it says, Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't Mary his mom? And then they list all his brothers and aren't his sisters with us now? How is this possible? This man is doing this? You've got to be joking. Later on, it says um, in John 1 verse 46, it says, Joseph's son with an exclamation, no way. You see, God invaded history 
in a human person. And he looked just like all the others. He had brothers and sisters. He, had, he, was, he worked with his hands, this Jesus that we, that we follow. And he exercised rule and authority and power because he had an intimate relationship with his father. He listened to his father and he did what his father did. And so that, in, in a very, very powerful way, that's what uh, Psalm 2 is saying. Don't be intimidated, but also understand that God uses the humble, the ordinary, the plain, the basic, because it's about him. And we do call ourselves broken vessels many times. And it's, it's, it's this unassuming person who is Jesus who turns the world upside down. It's the Christians who have been filled again with the power of God's Spirit who turn the world literally upside down in Acts. And now, because of the cross and the resurrection and of Pentecost, it's accessible and open to us as well. God's sovereignty, God's rule, God's kingdom is not imposed in the world or on people. It invades the world when we understand who we are. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your rule come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And how is that going to happen? And what Acts 4 is saying to us and what uh, Psalm 2 and Psalm 1 are saying to us is that we need to come back to the place where we understand who we are, that these twin pillars, if you like, at the entrance into a place of prayer and power are reminding us that our God is in control and that he rules. And so... This post-Pentecostal prayer that's recorded in Acts 4, this time when the people were united in prayer, is reminding us, reminding us of who our God is. It's reminding us of who we are, the anointed ones, who are able to say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As with Jesus, so with us.